Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through Dr. Luke's second volume in his bearing his name, the second being the book of Acts. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing. It advanced from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria. Now it is beginning to advance to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 15, what we saw is that as it advanced, it needed to be clarified. There was something that happened that required them to hit pause on the mission in order to clarify the gospel before they continued. Judaizers had come up from Jerusalem to Antioch and were telling the Gentiles that in order for them to be saved, they also had to be circumcised and they also had to follow the law of Moses. This was a big deal. And so they hit pause, they convened a council, they considered the issue, and they resolved the issue by rendering a decision that reinforced the gospel of grace over law. But now that the gospel has been clarified, now that they are sure that they've got it right, now it's time to get back to business. Now it's time for them to go on their second missionary journey. And that's the context for this passage that we're going to look at this morning. And it's the context for the whole book of Acts. Mission. Taking the gospel to our neighbors both near and far. They're on mission, and then they pause to clarify the gospel, the message of the mission, and now they're ready to go back out on mission. The goal for both Paul and Barnabas and for the church at Antioch, and the goal for us, you and I today, and our church today, is to get this gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. And as we link arms to do so, some things, we're going we're gonna to encounter some things. As we link arms to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, we are going to find ourselves at times in conflict with one another. And we're going to find ourselves at times where we need to figure out how to contextualize this timeless gospel to the culture that we've been called to reach without compromising its truth. And we're going to find ourselves, as we seek to be obedient in mission, needing guidance from the Holy Spirit to show us where to go and to whom to go on mission. And so that is what they face here in the passage that we're looking at this morning. But the goal, the mission, the overarching context here is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so let's read about these early Christians and how they continued to extend the gospel to the nations and how they faced these various things that they encountered as they were obedient to do so. We're going to begin in verse 36 of chapter 15 and we're going to continue through verse 10 of chapter 16. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who hath withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for all, they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you this morning already in our time together. We continue in that spirit of worship as we turn now to your precious word. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you so much for inspiring the human authors to put it on paper. We thank you so much for sovereignly overseeing the assembling of this book and the canonization of it. Father, we thank you for preserving it throughout the ages such that we can know beyond question that this is your very breath to us. And so not only do we thank you for it, but we ask that you would use it now to sanctify believers, to be on mission, and to be willing to face whatever challenges come our way as we seek to be on mission. And Father, we pray that you would use your word to create a hunger and a need inside of those who have yet to turn to Jesus in faith. So we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Our passage, passage this morning includes three distinct settings and three distinct stories. The closing verses of chapter 15 are about Paul and Barnabas in this sharp disagreement over whether or not to take John Mark with them on their journey. The opening verses of chapter 16 are about Paul having young Timothy circumcised and how that fits or doesn't fit with what we just covered last week in chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. And then verses 6 through 10 cover this story of the Macedonian call. As Paul and his companions are prevented first from going into Asia and then from going up into Bithynia and then receive a divine call from the Lord 
to take the gospel on into Europe. I've chosen this morning not to cover each of these passages individually, but to cover them in one setting for two reasons. Number one, again, the overarching context here is mission. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we are faithful to that command to take that gospel to the ends of the earth, we'll encounter challenges and difficulties along the way. And some of the challenges that Paul faces and his companions face as they seek to be obedient to the mission are similarly challenges that we're going to face as we seek to be faithful to it as well. But secondly, I don't think that any of these stories do well standing on their own, but rather as a part of this larger context. I I, I fear that if we handle them on their own, we would likely miss an important part of the larger context and passage. For example, if we were to do a sermon just on the closing six verses of chapter 15 on Paul and Barnabas' disagreement, It would probably be on conflict resolution. But I would submit to you that that's not what that passage is about. It's not about conflict resolution. We don't see anything there about how to resolve conflict. Rather, we're simply told that two seemingly godly men who are sold out to Jesus find themselves in conflict with one another. And we need to understand that within the larger context of their job to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I don't want us to miss the forest because we're down in the trees. So this is not simply a combination of seemingly unrelated stories that are randomly placed here. These are stories that are carefully curated by Dr. Luke in order to teach us some important principles about cross-cultural gospel mission. And so from these three seemingly unrelated stories this morning, we're going to unpack four principles of cross-cultural gospel mission. These are not the only principles of cross-cultural gospel mission, but they're the ones that Dr. Luke gives us here in this part of Acts. But each of these principles has a direct application to our lives as we seek to take the gospel to our neighbor's near and far. And by the way, when I say cross-cultural mission, I mean that not only in the sense of the traditional sense of us literally crossing cultures from the American culture to other cultures in other parts of the world, but also in addition to that, it includes us crossing over from our Christian culture to the secular culture around us in the world today, which we absolutely must do if the gospel is going to penetrate the lostness in our culture. And so four principles this morning for cross-cultural gospel mission. The first is this, as we take the gospel to our neighbors near and far, the reality is that conflict is inevitable in ministry. Conflict, interpersonal disagreement and conflict is going to happen. Paul and Barnabas, on one hand, are in agreement here on their goal and their strategy, if you will, to go back through the churches that they planted on their first missionary journey and see how they're doing. 
That's a great goal. That's a great ministry plan. And they are in agreement on that. But what they're in disagreement about is who to take with them. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. But Paul categorically does not. If you recall, when Paul and Barnabas first left the island of Cyprus on their first missionary journey and they landed in Pamphylia and they did ministry there before they moved inland into Galatia and up to Pisidian Antioch, we're told there in chapter 13 that John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. No other comment is given as to why or what the circumstances were that led to his departure. But for Paul, he clearly considered Mark's departure on their first missionary journey to have been tantamount to abandonment. For Paul, this was desertion on the most critical level. And it meant that when things got difficult, Mark, more than likely, was going to bail. And he didn't want, Paul didn't want to bring anybody along with him on this journey that either couldn't keep up or when the going got tough, they would quit. But on the other hand, you have Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he clearly prefers to extend Mark some grace. Barnabas's position is Yes, Mark left us, and no, that wasn't right. But look, he's back. He's come back to us from Jerusalem. He's ready to re-engage. And Paul, who among us is perfect in this? Paul, who among us has never failed? To, to Barnabas, John Mark deserves a second chance. And so there are sharp, we're told that a sharp disagreement arose between the two apostles over this. And I think it's noteworthy that those scholars have tried. Believe me, they've tried. I've read the commentaries. The scriptures do not tell us who's right and who's wrong. Neither do they tell us how they went about trying to resolve this conflict. So again, that can't be what this passage is about. This passage is not about conflict resolution. This passage simply tells us that there was a sharp or intense disagreement over this, so sharp, so intense, that it becomes the fulcrum over which they separate. It becomes the thing over which these two apostles go separate ways. So what do we take away from that? Well, perhaps a couple of things. One, on the surface, apparently godly men, even apostles, can have conflict with one another. Paul and Barnabas were sinners, just like us. They had a sin nature. They had a flesh, just like us. And neither their religious office nor their apparent spiritual maturity made them immune to interpersonal conflict. And apparently they were both so bullheaded and prideful and stubborn even that neither one of them was willing to budge, and it ended up being the thing that caused them to part ways. Now, we know from Paul's later writings that later in ministry, he considered John Mark to be of great use to him in ministry and get great comfort to him 
We know that they reconciled because Paul later wrote about that. But we have no indication that he and Barnabas ever did reconcile. Maybe they did. We don't know. All we know is that they parted ways here. And we never hear from Barnabas again in the scriptures. From here on out, Dr. Luke focuses on the journeys of Paul, not of Barnabas. The point is, if it can happen to the likes of Paul and Barnabas, then we shouldn't be surprised when it happens to us in the church today. When you have two sinners who are working in such close proximity to one another, it's inevitable that they will encounter conflict along the way. Even if you're serving in ministry, even if you're engaged in gospel mission like they were. In my nearly two and a half decades of pastoral ministry, I've seen this. And I've seen this because I've engaged in it. I've been guilty of this myself. I've found myself at times in sharp disagreement with another pastor, another elder, another deacon or whatever. And I've felt the sting of that conflict. And I know what it's like to need to go back with hat in hand and beg for forgiveness because I know that I was wrong and my pride got in the way and my emotions got the better of me. And sometimes, apparently, that kind of conflict can even result in godly people parting ways. It doesn't make it right. Again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. It doesn't mean that we're not in sin. We probably are in sin. Paul and Barnabas were probably in sin at some point in their sharp disagreement with one another that led to their parting ways. So it doesn't make it right. And we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when, when either our sin nature or theirs or probably both allows us to be in sharp disagreement with one another. So that's the first lesson from this first principle. If it happened to them, it can and probably still will happen to us. Don't underestimate the depravity of man so much so that you think that you or your pastors or those that you look up to spiritually are somehow immune from interpersonal conflict. They're not. It's likely to happen. The second lesson from this first principle that conflict in ministry is inevitable is that God is sovereign even over this. God's sovereign over their conflict. What happens as a result of this conflict? Well, Paul and Silas go one way. They, they go through the churches in Syria and Cilicia and they, they take the land route up into southern Galatia. And then Barnabas and John Mark set off via the ocean and go off to Cyprus, which, by the way, is the only place that Paul and Barnabas did not return to as they went on their return trip on their first missionary journey, as they sought to go back and encourage the churches that they had planted. They never went back to Cyprus, but Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark do. And so they go there, and they strengthen the church at Cyprus. And to this day, Barnabas is considered a saint for the church at Cyprus. Does that mean that God caused Paul and Barnabas to have this sharp disagreement? 
I think, caused us too sharp a word here because God never tempts us to sin. But certainly God is sovereign over it such that he ensured that gospel mission would be multiplied, such that more churches would be planted and strengthened and encouraged. And he was sovereign over it so that more young men would be trained and equipped and sent out on mission themselves. Think about it. If Barnabas had gone with Paul, there probably would have been no opportunity and no need for young Silas to accompany them and have such an important role as he will in Paul's upcoming journeys. Conversely, if Barnabas had not set out with John Mark, perhaps that young man never would have had an opportunity to, pr- to prove himself trustworthy in mission and in ministry. And why is that important? What became of John Mark? Well, as we've already read, Paul later wrote of him both in Colossians and in 2 Timothy that he later became a great, useful part of his ministry. He wrote that John Mark became very useful to him and was, he writes in Colossians, a great comfort to me in ministry as he, as he sits in the prison there in Rome. But not only that, this mark is the mark that God chose to write the second gospel account of his son's earthly life and ministry. And I wonder if any of that would have been possible if God had not been sovereign over the conflict between Paul and Barnabas. This doesn't mean that we sadistically go looking for conflict. But we're not to be surprised by it. And we should have faith to be confident that even conflict that is sharp and intense and even conflict that ultimately arises because of sinful man and our sinful nature causes us to be separated from one another. God can still use that for his kingdom purposes to build his church, just like he did here. That's the first first principle. Second principle from this passage As we take the gospel to our neighbors near and far, we must be prepared to contextualize the gospel without compromising its truth. We need to be prepared and know how to contextualize the gospel without compromising its truth. To me, that's what the story of Timothy being circumcised is all about. Now, On the heels of the Jerusalem council that we read about last week in chapter 15, on the surface, Paul having Timothy circumcised seems to contradict the findings of that council, right? That council had decided that a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ categorically does not need to be circumcised, does not need to follow the law of Moses, does not need to become a Jew, But here we have Paul doing that very thing to Timothy. So what gives? Well, for one, we need to understand who Timothy was. He's not a full Gentile. Instead, we're told here by Luke that he's of a mixed heritage. His father was a Gentile, a Greek. But his mother, and later we'll learn from Paul's writings, his grandmother 
are both Jewish. And Paul knows that as they set out to do ministry to both Gentiles and Jews, it would be a stumbling block to Jews if they knew that Timothy, who was a Jew, was not circumcised. That would have been a big, big deal to them. To them, that would have been a game stopper. And what had Paul just done? He had just spent months away from the mission field, going down to Jerusalem, dealing with this doctrinal squabble. Not that the doctrinal squabble wasn't important, but it was resolved. And the very last thing he wanted to do now was to stall the mission again and go back down to Jerusalem for another council. And so in order to not needlessly defend the Jews in Galatia and not have his mission interrupted again by another council, he has Timothy circumcised. Now, understand that if Timothy was a full Gentile, this would have not been an issue. He would not have had him circumcised. Or if the question had been whether or not Timothy could be saved in, uh, without being circumcised, again, Paul would have had him circumcised. That would have been compromising truth. But Timothy wasn't a full Gentile. He was at least half Jewish. And so this was in keeping with his Jewish ancestry. And this wasn't about his salvation. This was about mission. And so without compromising truth, Paul contextualized the gospel here. What does it mean to contextualize the gospel? It means to consider the norms and nuances of your mission field and to be willing to adjust one's methodology and our own cultural preferences for the sake of mission. Zane Pratt writes that contextualization is the word we use for the process, listen to this, for the process of making the gospel and the church as much at home as possible in a given cultural context. Now, we can contextualize the gospel while also compromising truth if we do not hold unswervingly to biblical fidelity. But that's not what is at stake here. Paul is not compromising biblical truth here. Timothy is at least half Jewish, and this is a way for him to honor his Jewish heritage and not needlessly offend the Jews that they will encounter on their mission trip while also not compromising truth. All of this for the purpose of taking the gospel and penetrating lostness where they're going. It's not a whole lot different than the four requirements that the Jewish uh, the Jerusalem council placed on the Gentiles at the end of our passage last week as a result of the Jer- Jerusalem council. They said categorically, in order to be saved, you don't ha- Gentiles, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to follow the law of Moses. But we do ask that you ab- abstain from some things. We ask that you abstain from food offered to idols. We ask that you abstain from uh, animals that had been strangled from blood and from sexual immorality. In in other words, you don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved, but we do want you to abstain from these things that would otherwise be very offensive to the Jews that you're seeking to reach with the gospel. In other words, out of love, 
contextualize. Out of love, consider the norms and nuances of your mission field, which will include ethnic Jews. Paul would later employ this very same principle as he writes to the church in Corinth. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This encapsulates this idea so well. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, in other words, though I'm not bound by the law, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then he gives the application to that principle. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I'm not engaging in their sinful behavior, but I'm becoming like those outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. And he concludes with this, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. That is contextualizing the gospel without compromising its truth. Friend, we all contextualize the gospel. The, The question is whether or not we do it well and biblically, or whether we do it poorly and unbiblically. We all contextualize. So how does that play out in our efforts to take the gospel to our neighbors near and far? Well, first, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean not calling homosexuality sin. That would be compromising truth. It does not mean acquiescing to our gender-confused culture. That, too, would be compromising truth. It doesn't mean engaging in sinful behavior in order to share the gospel with those who are engaging in that sinful behavior. Because that too would be compromising truth. It would be saying that that behavior is okay when it's not. So what does it mean? I think it could mean many things. It might mean a willingness to hang out with people who engage in a particular sinful behavior. Like Jesus did, by the way in order to expose them to the good news of the gospel. Not engaging in the behavior ourselves, but being willing to hang out with those who do so that they can be exposed to hear the gospel and respond to its truth. It might mean a willingness to set aside some of our preferences, whether they're musical preferences, recreational preferences, entertainment preferences, or whatever. In order to spend more time with lost people who need Jesus. As Zane Pratt said in that earlier quote, the gospel should be at home in any cultural context. He concludes that article with this, and this is so good. Our goal is to make sure that we do not put any obstacles in the way of the gospel ourselves. That the only stumbling block is the stumbling block of the cross and that the meaning of that cross is clear to all. And so we should ask ourselves reflectively, what stumbling blocks do you and I put in the way of the gospel in our mission field today? 
What, what are the obstacles to the gospel that, that we place in the way that our lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers have to overcome in order for them to be exposed to the gospel from our lips and our lives? Let us be willing to contextualize the gospel without compromising its truth in any way. There's a really a third kind of subtle principle here that comes from both of these first two stories, both the story of Paul and Barnabas's conflict and the story of Paul having Timothy circumcised. What, what do those stories have in common? Well, whether it's Paul heading off to Cilicia or Barnabas sailing off to Cyprus or Paul continuing on into Timothy, uh, in, into Macedonia with Timothy, what these stories have in common is that they don't do it alone. They do it in partnership with other believers. They do it in community. So the principle here is that we can do more together than we can by ourselves. Paul takes Silas with him on his land journey into Galatia. Barnabas takes John Mark with him as he sails off to Cyprus. And when Paul prepares to sail to Macedonia, he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Because as he says there in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him not explicit in this text but we find it all over the book of acts and that is that when we see the early church take the gospel to the ends of the earth they do it in community they almost never do it alone they almost never do it separated from one another they almost always do mission in community partnered with other believers in jerusalem and judea it was peter and james then it was Paul and Barnabas. Now it's Paul and Silas and Barnabas and, and uh, John Mark and Timothy joining Paul and Silas. There are both pragmatic reasons for doing mission together because we can do more together than we can alone. Two are better than one. As well as biblical reasons for doing mission together because it demonstrates our common faith, our common identity, our common hope, and our common mission but it's also the prevalent pattern that we see in the book of Acts. Christians engage in mission together. So how, how do we apply that principle? Let me suggest three ways, very, very simple ways. Number one, pray for the evangelistic fervor and faithfulness of those with whom you are in community with. Consider those that are in your base group, for example. Do you know the names of the lost people that they're seeking to reach with the gospel? Are you praying for them to have the courage and the fervor and the love for Jesus and the concern for that person's lostness so much so that, that they would overcome their fear and engage them? Are you following up with them? Pray for their evangelistic fervor and faithfulness. Secondly, Leverage the giftedness in your community for the sake of mission. Maybe someone in your base group is particularly gifted in hospitality. Maybe they're the one to host a dinner party at their house, invite their neighbors to. Maybe someone else in your base group is gifted evangelistically. Invite them to come and share the gospel with your neighbors. Maybe someone else in your group is, is particularly gifted, uh, has the gift of mercy and there's someone in your neighborhood or, or in your sphere of influence that's going through a particularly hard time with whom that person could show a level of empathy and care and love that 
the rest of us probably couldn't. Leverage the giftedness in your community for the purpose of mission. And then third, allow the biblical community that you have with one another to be an apologetic for the gospel. When it's clear that the only thing that you share in common with these people is your common faith and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is going to be particularly attractive and appealing to the lost people around you who simply do not have anything like that. And so allow that community to be a living example of the kind of unity that we have in Christ and let it prove out that gospel. But if instead, if instead we isolate from one another and we, we seek to be engaged in mission only in our individual lives with, with no interaction or engagement from other believers, not only is that harder and less effective, but we risk, we risk contradict, contradicting the very gospel that we say that we believe. So we can do more together than we can by ourselves. The fourth and final principle in this passage for cross-cultural gospel mission that Luke gives us in this passage is to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us in mission. Verses 6 through 10 tell us this very curious story how Paul and Silas, along with Timothy now, are prevented from traveling to a couple of different places, and then they receive a vision to take the gospel to Macedonia. This is a story of God providing guidance to his people who are on mission for him as they travel. And it's a lesson for us to learn how to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us into mission as well. So let's look at this passage more closely, beginning in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they had intended to take the gospel to Asia. Now, when it says Asia here, don't think China, don't think Japan, don't think India. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the land further east that we would consider to be Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia. It was the land that was in the western part of modern-day Turkey, right up against the Aegean Sea. That was the Roman province of Asia. That's where they had intended to go. That's the route that they were taking. And if they had taken that route, it would have taken them directly to Ephesus. But instead, they took a more northern route through Phrygia and Galatia. And the reason for that course correction, the reason for that adjustment to their travel route, according to them, is that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to speak the word of God in the Roman province of Asia. We don't know any details here of how or why they were prevented from going to Asia, only that they were prevented from going in that direction. And the apostles clearly attribute that work of restraining them from going to Asia to the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that did that. And so they continued westward. Verse 7. And when they had come to Mysia, which is north of the province of Asia, but also part of the western part of modern-day Turkey, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which, is, which would have been even further north above Mysia, 
up by the Black Sea. But we're told because of the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. It's interesting, isn't it? They, they try to go south, they try to take the southern route, and the Holy Spirit prevents them. And so they, they try to go north, and the Spirit of Jesus says, no, you're not allowed to go that way. And so they head directly westward, verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, which is right on the Aegean Sea, by the way, directly across from Macedonia. Verse 9, and a vision, while they're there, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. By the way, the we here in verse 10 indicates that Dr. Luke now joins this mission trip, and he's with them for a good while as they continue on this second missionary journey. Now, these verses here give us a crash course in discerning guidance from the Lord. But remember the context. This is not simply about Paul discovering God's will for his life in some kind of general way. But rather, it was Paul and his companions being guided on mission. Again, the context of this passage and that of the whole book is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as they set out to fulfill that mission, well, they needed guidance along the way to know where to go. And the Lord provided it. And so I want us to look here at, at five lessons in these verses about receiving missional guidance from the Lord. And, and certainly, in a sense, we could apply this in a generic sense to our life and, and, and finding God's will and following His guidance. But, but church, don't, don't miss the context. This is about discerning missional guidance from the Lord. Where should we go? What should we do in taking the gospel to our neighbors near and far? Number one, what's clear here is that the context for missional guidance is missional obedience. Great commission faithfulness is the environment, the atmosphere in which missional guidance is discerned rightly. As the saying goes, it's much easier to steer a ship that is moving, right? Jesus had given them their marching orders. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they weren't given any details about how exactly to fulfill that. Start in Jerusalem, go to the surrounding region of Judea, go to the next region of Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. How, when, where, what direction? Just the ends of the earth. And so they started going to the ends of the earth. And God guided them as they were going. As they were on their way. Friend, if I want the Lord to guide me on mission, then perhaps I need to ask him to do so as I'm on my way to my neighbor's house to share the gospel with them rather than sitting at home watching television. It's easier to steer a moving ship. Second lesson here. God both opens and closes doors to the gospel. He's sovereign over that. I think it's interesting here that 
God uses both restraints and promptings. Two restraints, one that prevents them from going to Asia and one that prevents them from going to Bithynia and one prompting a vision of a man calling from Macedonia to bring the gospel to Europe. Again, we don't know any, anything about what form these restraints took, how the Holy Spirit prevented, how they knew that the, the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go the northern route. We don't know anything about that. But they discerned that it was from the Holy Spirit. But God does both. And if one door to the gospel, one door of opportunity to the gospel is closed, perhaps it's because he is opening another one to the gospel somewhere else. Now, sometimes it can be difficult to discern the difference between a closed door and simply an obstacle that we have to persevere through and that's difficult to persevere through. For this reason, there's a couple more lessons about receiving missional guidance from the Lord that helps us to discern that. So the third lesson is that missional guidance is best discerned in community. Notice all the plural pronouns here. They, them, we, us. Seven times in five verses. Clearly this is not Paul getting away on his own, coming up with what he's supposed to do, and then telling the rest of them. They discern missional guidance from the Lord in community. So maybe the next time your base group leader asks you where it is that you sense the Lord leading you to deploy yourself in missional obedience in the spheres of influence in your life, maybe it's best to turn that back on the group and say, guys, I don't really know. You know me best. You know my strengths. You know my weaknesses. You know my giftings. Where do you think I need to employ this? Where do you think I need to work on this? Where is it do you, that you think that I need to grow? What do you think is preventing me from being more evangelistically faithful? Missional guidance is best discerned in the context of biblical community. And then also, missional guidance involves rational reasoning. If we're going to discern the difference between a closed door and a door that God has closed and simply a tough obstacle that needs to be overcome, then we're going to need to employ some rational reasoning skills. See, God's guidance, missional guidance in this sense, divine guidance from the Lord and how to take the gospel to the nations is not simply circumstantial. What doors are open, what doors are closed. It's also about using our rational thinking skills. Look at verse 10. It says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Tim, Tim Keller notes that the word conclude there in verse 10 connotes the putting together of a puzzle as if the the paul and the and the his companions here sit down and and get out the puzzle pieces of what's been happening in order to figure out what god is doing here all right we try to go south and the lord said no we we tried to go north he obviously put put up into that and so we start going west it's almost as if the lord is channeling us westward So we get to Troas, and then Paul is given this vision that seems to be from the Lord about a Macedonian calling him there. And and wait a second, didn't Jesus say, take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Gospel hasn't gone to Europe yet. Maybe we're supposed to take the gospel there. And so they use those rational 
skills, reasoning skills in the context of, of community and discern that they're supposed to take the gospel to Europe. And what happens? Verses 11 and 12. We'll get to this next week. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Naples, And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained there in that city some days. Discerning missional guidance from the Lord is not simply about which doors are open, which doors are closed, but about using rational thinking in the context of community to discern the Lord's guidance and where he's leading. And then a fifth and final lesson about receiving missional guidance from the Lord. Missional guidance often comes progressively, bit by bit, piece by piece. And so it requires both patience and flexibility. And what I mean is that it doesn't come all at once. It doesn't come all at once for Paul and his companions. They set out to visit all the churches that they had planted on their first missionary journey. It's a noble cause. It's a worthy journey and venture. But they don't get very, very far before the Lord closes the door to their advancement southward. And so they head north. And they don't get very far north before then the Lord asks them to course correct again. And change their plans again and head westward. And so when they get to the end of that road in Troas at the Aegean Sea, God then opens a door for them to go to Macedonia. When they first set out, they just started visiting the churches in Galatia. And they had no intentions of doing anything else and going anywhere else, certainly not to Macedonia across the Aegean Sea. And we're not told here anything about how these guys reacted to all of these course corrections and switchbacks in their journey. For many of us, myself included, this would have really tried our patience, right? Because it seems like we're not making any headway. We're just going in circles back and forth. To the planners in the room, this might have been very frustrating to you. Because you had made a plan to go back and visit all the churches. And now that plan has been severely diverted. A severe deviation from that plan. And following, on, following the Lord on mission is often like that. We start out in one direction. And it's not long before we find out we're actually supposed to go in this direction. John Stott recalls that this has been the experience of many missionaries. David Livingstone wanted to go to China, but he was sent to Africa instead. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia. Who wouldn't, right? But he was sent to India. Adnaram Judson was sent to India first, but then he was called away to take the gospel to Burma. We don't know why God sometimes leads like this. Perhaps it's simply so that we would remain dependent on him and look to him in faith for the next step that we're to take on mission. But following God's guidance on mission will require patience and will require flexibility. 
And it'll also require a resolved trust that though we don't know why God is leading the way he is leading and where he's leading, where he's leading, we can trust that he does. And he's control over all of that. And so these, Paul and his companions, they, they don't succumb to frustration and they don't give up due to a lack of patience. Instead, they follow God's leading all the way to Macedonia. And what happens when they get to Macedonia? They find their way to Philippi. And they meet a young woman in Philippi named Lydia. And they share the gospel with her. And Lydia becomes the very first recorded convert to Christianity on the continent of Europe. And that's what this passage is about. Taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbor's both near and far. And as we do so, we would do well to remember that conflict is probably going to be inevitable among us. So don't be surprised by it. And trust that God is sovereign even in that. Be ready as we do this to contextualize the gospel as he sends us from this mission field to that mission field without compromising the truth of the gospel in the least. And remember that we can do more together than we can by ourselves and to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us on mission. All of this in an effort to take the gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Let's pray. Father, so much of what we read in this passage rings true to what we already know. We know that we are men and women of flesh. We know that conflict is inevitable. We've had it. We will continue to have it. Pray that you would guard us from that. But Father, that that would not in any way derail us from mission. We pray that you would be sovereign over it. Lord, we do admit that it's easier sometimes to just do mission on our own without relying on engaging in and being dependent on one another in mission, but that's not the way you've set it up in the body of Christ. You gifted us differently for a reason, so that we would rely on one another. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to do that in this church. Help us to do that in our base groups. And not simply share with one another what we're doing, but how we can do it together. And Father, We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance to lead us on mission as a church, as a family. And Father, we ask that you give us extra measure of grace and patience and flexibility to be willing to trust you even when you ask for us to change direction and course correct. We don't know what's around the bend, but you do, and so we trust you in that. Give us a greater trust and faith in you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.